From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting today, though, talking about something else, talking about the recommendations that can be found in a report put forward by the Vancouver Mayor's Budget Task Force. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Councillor Brian Montague, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Jill. How are you today? Very well. How about you? I'm doing all right. Uh, wanted to talk more about this. Uh, I know you were part of this task force looking at ways to stop from going ahead and anticipating or having double-digit property tax increases uh, every year. What What was the biggest challenge for you as far as sitting down with this group and trying to look at, uh, at ways to, to save money and ways to perhaps change things? Yeah, my role was uh, was an interesting one. I, I just sort of observed a lot of what the budget task force was was doing uh, along the, their journey. I think one of the things that was readily apparent to me was that, <clears throat> despite the fact that there was a a small army of people uh, looking at this and working on, on this, uh, uh, these are experts in their fields. Um, it was a daunting task for them. This is a huge. This is a huge, huge undertaking for sure to, to dive into the city books and. And, and sit down with every department within the city and try and find ways where uh, there could be cost savings and revenue opportunities and efficiencies. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it was a, um, that was one of the biggest things was just realizing how big of a task this is. It uh, took a look at, again, all of the spending the city does. It takes a look at the budget. One of the findings, though, uh, it uh, says that the tax increases, in uh, again, in the double digits, those tax increases are not sustainable. But it also found what it refers to uh, in the report as a staggering $500 million annual gap when it comes to infrastructure funding. Do any of the recommendations, do you think, do they offer up ideas on how to fix that? Yeah, I think there's a number of ideas in there, and and, and I've read the report um, a couple of times, and, and just trying to, uh, in some cases, read between the lines a little bit, and just trying to wrap my head around some of the findings. Uh, there were some interesting ones for sure. Uh, you mentioned the infrastructure deficit. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of this, this, um, a lot of the things that came out of this was was to ensure transparency and to also educate the public on the true state of the finances and, and the infrastructure in Vancouver and, and just what problems we're, we're facing. And you're right, this, you know, double digit property tax increases are not sustainable. And that's one of the reasons the mayor put this task force together was to try and make sure that that never happens again. But do you think there are recommendations in here? And, and we can go through some of them because I think so, some of them might seem pretty pretty basic in that it seems to have a, an, a theme through this report that is about getting back to those basics, to those to the core jurisdiction of the city, uh, saying that uh, the city has expanded its role. Uh, one of the lines in there saying it has taken on the responsibilities traditionally handled by provincial or federal governments, so the term uh, downloading uh, being used. Does it to explain or does it suggest ways of maybe moving away from that and having more of the spending going right to those core responsibilities? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that, that's kind of stood out for me a little bit. And, and uh, uh, one of the things it talks about is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the uh, downloaded costs and, and the city spending money on things that the city maybe shouldn't be spending money on. on uh, these are responsibilities of the province and the federal government. And that's to the tune of about $400 million in expenditures that are kind of outside those traditional jurisdictional 
um, service areas. Um, one thing that uh, that I, I found interesting was when the task force uh, kind of dove into the assets that the city does have. And the city's got it's something. It's over. It's like thirty billion dollars in assets. Uh, their capital fund, their property endowment fund, and their Vancouver affordable housing endowment fund. Uh, these are huge assets. And this, uh, you know, I think this, the report suggests that the city isn't leveraging these assets in a way that's um, uh, giving us the best opportunities. Uh, the property endowment fund, for example, is only providing, and it's it's strictly there for non-civic uses. It's, it's actually meant to generate uh, revenue for the city. And it's only generating, it's like $6 billion in assets. It's only generating about $13 million a year. Um, in some of the the meetings that I was observing, I think the task force felt that that could be tenfold in the, the amount of revenue that, that those properties and that uh, could be actually generating for the city. Um, so actually leveraging the assets that the city has already has uh, in its portfolio, I think is, is really significant. There was a couple of other small things too that, one of the things that jumped out at me was the uh, absenteeism rate at the city of Vancouver. And I was actually pretty shocked to see those numbers um, and how reducing them by just one day across the board could save the city four and a half million dollars a year. I saw that in the report. I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't completely clear on the numbers or if the report put forward those numbers. So does it give you a better idea or a clear picture on absenteeism and, and how much that is costing the city? Well, I think the report itself, it, it touches on it. it. I think it's something that we, we really need to look into, though. Um, uh, you know, why is the absenteeism at the city so high? Uh, the provincial average, the report suggests, is, is 10 days a year. Uh, at the city, it's, uh, it averages 18 days a year. And at the park board, the average ab- absenteeism uh, is 25 days a year, which is a staggering number of days. Uh, and if, uh, you know, uh, how do how does the city look at this and go, well, how do we reduce that? How do we support uh, the employees at the city of Vancouver so that they're not calling in, uh, 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 you know, not being absent from their jobs? Uh, and the report suggests that, that just reducing that from, from 18 days at the city to 17 days could save $4.5 million. Hmm. And, it, and when we're talking about that, you're talking about all staff members. Does that include elected officials? Is it, is it everybody that works for city, for park board, that kind of thing? It would be what they would consider the full-time employees. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, when it looks at that number, did that include through the pandemic when there were people working from home or perhaps there were different types of scenarios? Because I know if you go way back, well, not way back, but if you go back a few years, there was the four-day work week at Vancouver City Hall, and it went to five, and it was quite controversial when that happened. Yeah, my understanding is that that's, it takes into account those things, and that doesn't include, uh, include uh, that sort of thing. I think this is strictly an absenteeism rate. Uh, and like I said, it, it kind of shocks me. I, I look back at, at um, I was with the Vancouver Police for 28 years before I became a city councillor, and I could probably count on on my fingers how many times I was absent from from work other than holidays. Um, so it really shocks me to to hear that, you know, um, you know, not just the city number, but the park board number really shocked me. 25 days a year, five weeks of every year, um, calling in absent is is a staggering number, and. And, uh, you know, determining how, why is that happening and is there something we can do to reduce that? So if, if one day would save uh, $4.5 million, you know, what would five days save? You know, uh, mm-hmm. like this is the, the amount of, of, of efficiencies and production 
um, could be a huge cost savings to the city. So those are, are interesting things I found in the report that I wasn't expecting. Um, um, but I, I think, you know, uh, one of the biggest things is, is really looking at that, that things like the property endowment fund uh, and, and leveraging uh, that to its, its, its best ability and actually generating some real revenues out of that rather than property taxes and other, other taxes and, and fees. Right. And one other thing that I know is, is coming out of this report that will likely get a lot of attention is this idea of the report saying that, that again, keeping those core assets, but considering private sector ownership for non-core assets or the private management or public-private partnerships. And I think it even yeah. goes so far as perhaps even giving the naming rights to city assets or do- donors funding city programs. Is, is that something that you think could, could potentially bring in those revenues because it would be a big change yeah i'd be supportive of a lot of those suggestions um you know uh, are there are there properties that are being underutilized and that we should divest in uh you know those are great questions that we should we should have serious conversations about um as far as naming rights and, and philanthropy and all those things i'm a huge supporter uh of of that um if we can get away from from burdening the Vancouver taxpayers uh, year upon year upon year, um, why wouldn't we look at these solutions? Well, it is uh, certainly something that we will continue uh, to discuss and look at, and I know it's coming to Council uh, for uh, their conversation on this as well. Councillor Montague, though, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jill. Appreciate it. for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. We have been talking a lot about the weather, the cold temperatures, snow that is still in many parts of Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley, and what is happening to people who are experiencing homelessness. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about that is Amanda Burroughs, Executive Director with First United Church. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Do we know at this point, uh, I mean, it's just a, a horrible, horrible uh, situation and even thinking about this, but do we know at this point if people, uh, as far as loss of life or if people have died because of exposure to the cold? I just heard a report that one person did die overnight outside. So and, yes, there is death because of the cold. And outside in the city of Vancouver? That's correct. What is being done as far as trying to help people? And I know others have been sharing uh, some pretty heartbreaking photos and, and images on uh, social media. What is being done to, to try and get to as many people or to help people who are outside in this? Well, I'm not quite sure what the city of Vancouver is doing right now, except for trying to uh, displace people sheltering in parks. Um, As far as I'm concerned and aware, a ton of grassroots groups, advocates and social service providers are the ones doing the outreach right now in the work. And, you know, we're we're exhausted. We've had really long days. We feel like we're doing this work alone. And concurrent to this, we're also advocating for these unhoused residents in these parks um, where park rangers and cops are coming in rather than doing outreach, trying to displace people. And it's just this dissonance between us thinking as a society we want to respond in this extreme weather with care and then also seeing this extreme juxtaposition of what's happening with city employees is actually quite disturbing. Are they offering people places to go when going into the encampments or where people are living in parks and some of those spaces? Uh, absolutely not. No, us as advocates are there um, trying to 
you know, like I said, protects people's belongings. With the snowfall yesterday, um, park rangers and cops aren't really harassing tent residents. Uh, however, I am at Crab Park right now. We were, we were trying to build a tiny home uh, in the sanctioned encampment, and we were just stopped by about 18 police officers and rangers trying to confiscate our materials. So again, uh, the dissonance between having a city that thinks it wants to respond with extreme weather and care and compassion to then literally seeing them bar an innovative and affordable solution to housing in real time in a sanctioned encampment makes zero sense. And as I keep saying all week, everything about this is just so absurd. Uh, do you think, is it different because of the weather that, that being stopped by doing this? I would imagine that if people are trying to build, uh, build structures in parks, that, that those are either stopped or taken down shortly after, aren't they? That's correct, but Crab Park is a sanctioned encampment, and so they're trying innovative ways, not using a foundation uh, to create more shelter, a sturdier shelter with some insulation, especially in this extreme cold. And a group from Prince George that has done this uh, up there came down to prototype and show us how, how to build these. And just seeing, seeing it stop right now with the snow just adds such a layer of drama uh, to what's going on right now. What did they say when when they came in and and stopped you and the others from putting up that structure? Uh, they cited bylaws as they do. We like to you know weaponize bylaws to stop important work, and uh, they just said that we'll confiscate the material. And there's just a bit of a bylaw uh, rhetoric standoff between uh, the folks lawyer and then the park ranger. And we you know they still tried to bring in the materials, and were stopped and um, sort of as they said, stand down for now um, as some legal teams come together to have a discussion about this encampment. Is it different as well? Because even though, like you said, it's a a sanctioned encampment, the difference between Mm -hmm. having a tent versus a permanent or a more permanent structure? Yeah, I mean, it's really, interpretation is always a fun game, uh, depending on what side you're on. And so um, a temporary structure uh, was what was being debated today. And their interpretation is that this uh, tiny home would not be a temporary structure. And us advocates trying to build it, it is still a temporary structure. It's just a warmer one. Right. Uh, so what will people do or what are people doing uh, to, to try and get through this and to, to stay warm and to stay as safe as possible in this cold snap? Well, us as, you know, outreach workers at First United, we're collecting so many in-kind donations. It's been so wonderful to see some folks donate toques and gloves. And what we do is we disperse them to different warming centers and walk around the downtown east side giving out uh, gloves and certain um, materials to people, checking on people, um, early morning walkabouts, making sure that people, um, you know, are alive. And then in the evening as well. And, and like, as, as a society, I think we can just do better, um, organize more and prioritize care for our neighbours in more dignified ways. Are there enough warming centres and spaces at warming centres right now for people who need them? Honestly, I think it's a more of a communication issue. So the city does an extreme weather like this, uh, sanctions some what they call extreme uh, weather uh, response. And so there are a few in the downtown east side. Uh, there, some of them are full, some aren't. And the problem is, is communication. There isn't a coordinated response among the city to get out and do outreach to let people know where they are. That's the problem I'm seeing. So that's part of our outreach. And then further to that, you know, we don't have Wi-Fi in community either. And so without on-the-ground outreach, there still isn't that, you know, communications that we could have to mobilize either. So there's just a real lack of support. And weather like this just really exacerbates that 
and it's frustrating for us as social service providers. You mentioned as well donations that have come in and those cold water, mm-hmm. uh, cold sorry, cold weather uh, essentials. Uh, if people are hearing yeah. this or if people do want to help out, what is the best way to do that? Absolutely. So First United, 368 Powell Street. Until 4 p.m. today and tomorrow, we're continuing to collect um, cold weather items. The things we need the most are gloves, toques, scarves, winter coats, boots, and people also like hot chocolate. Then what we do is we disperse them not only in our locations, but are in, in the neighborhood as well. And we'll be collecting tomorrow as well. So if people want to come down, provide new items or gently used, um, we embrace with open arms and so grateful for so many people who have been responding and helping. All right. So until four o'clock today and then again uh, from, I, I think, did you say eight to four o'clock tomorrow as well? That's correct. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say it really goes a long way. It really does. All right. Well, Amanda, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome so much. Stay safe and have a great day. Just a quick weather note. Uh, I know we are getting reports that snow is falling again in some parts of Metro Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. We will have the very latest on that coming up on the program. And we're also going to check in with the mayor of Abbotsford in the final hour of the show to find out what's happening on the roads and the anticipation of freezing rain in that area as well. So we will have all of that for you throughout the afternoon. Right now, though, talking about something you've likely heard on the news, it is deadline day today for Canadian businesses to repay their pandemic loans to receive partial loan forgiveness. But many business groups are warning this could mean the closure for them. Hundreds of thousands of businesses and nonprofits took advantage of the Canada Emergency Business Account Loan. And as much as one-third of the loan could be forgiven if the outstanding amount is repaid by today. If it's not, that means the debt will convert into a three-year, 5% annual interest loan. Well, earlier we heard from Dan Kelly, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And he tells Global News that without an extension, many businesses could close their doors. I I don't think this is going to happen all at once, but many businesses will use the sign that their sales not back to normal, cost being higher, and the debt not going away, in fact, getting greater as a signal that they've got to wrap it up. And, and sadly, in that group, there are some viable businesses that if it weren't for the debt, could live to fight another day. Uh, this is a pretty sad day for, for hundreds of thousands of small business owners across the country. That was Dan Kelly with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. So what does this mean for restaurants who find themselves themselves in that position? Joining me now to talk more about this is Mark Von Schelwitz, Western Canada Vice President at Restaurants Canada. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my pleasure, Jill. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Is this something that is impacting a lot of restaurants as far as today being the deadline and restaurants having uh, taken advantage, taken part in the Canadian, the Canada Emergency Business Account Loan? Yes. Well, as you know, Jill, about over 80% of our industry took advantage of the SEBA loans. And we've been working with the federal government ever since on some sort of a program, if not an extension, at least something to give us a little bit more time. Uh, but we're not asking for a handout here. We're just asking for a bit more time to, to pay back these loans because 
we've got about 20% of our members that say they're just not an ability uh, to, to repay those loans by today's deadline. So what we're finding uh, is that we've got a lot of our members that can't get refinanced through their institutions, so they've lost that forgivable portion of the loan, and this just adds to the debt that they already have. Uh, and as you know, Jill, we just have not been in a situation in our industry in particular that's recovered from the pandemic. We've had all these pandemic uh, um, headwinds that have come at us with cost increases and labor shortages and additional debt. So we are one of the few industries that have really not recovered yet from uh, the post uh, from the pandemic lockdowns. And, and, you know, we had all these members that took on all this debt to keep their lights on, to keep their people employed. And now they're in a very precarious position when we've got uh, more than half of our industry is not making any money. Over 30% are losing money. And that compares to just 12% before the pandemic. So we've got a lot of restaurants in very fragile shape. And we're just hoping that, you know, this is just another obstacle that uh, is going to lead to more restaurant closures. We already had a big increase last year. Uh, in 2023, we had uh, an increase of, you know, 50% of our restaurants, uh, uh, an increase uh, of those uh, insolvencies. So uh, there's a lot of restaurants in really tough circumstances out there, and, and uh, we just don't want to see more of them close, which obviously impacts their communities, their staff, and, and uh, it's a pretty sad day for for. for those uh, for those members. So what we're doing now, Jill, is just asking the federal government to do other things to lower our costs and, and make our industry viable once again. You know, they can do things like uh, capping this liquor tax, which is coming down the uh, pipeline and uh, recognizing that we don't have as many people in our restaurants as we did before the pandemic. Maybe make uh, uh, business uh, 100% deductibility for business meals in restaurants to try and boost members to or, uh, consumers to come into our restaurants, and and that would give another incentive for them to do that. So there are things that the federal government can do to help the industry, uh, but there's no question this is a, another big obstacle that the industry has to overcome. Uh, do you think there will be restaurants? Are there restaurants in the position though? And uh, obviously, there, there's not going to be another extension because today is the deadline. So with that converting to a loan at 5% interest, are there restaurants that they couldn't pay back the lump sum and get the loan forgiveness, but will they be able to make the payments on that loan? I think some will, but uh, there may be some that won't. And once again, this could be the tipping point uh, you know, they're reaching a point now where they're having to take on more debt just to try and survive and, and get through a period where hopefully the revenues will increase enough that they can pay back those loans. But when you combine all that debt together uh, and all these other cost increases and challenges that the industry is facing, uh, there's no question that we're going to see some restaurants close. And of course, that's uh, something nobody wants to see. And with the, with the extensions that were given, did those help restaurants at least try and get in a position? Or was it, like you said, not as many people going, that, that the writing was kind of on the wall for, for, for a portion of these restaurants in that there, there was nothing they could do to get that lump sum payment? Yeah, and, and I think you know, on this particular issue, you know, we have not been in normal circumstances over the last few years with all this debt and everything like that. So we've got a lot of our members uh, that 
uh, in normal circumstances, they would have been able to pay off these loans. But the last three years have been anything but normal with uh, rising food prices, higher lease costs, uh, consumer spending habits changing with the with them going to more takeout delivery and uh, just not coming out to the same degree that they did before the pandemic. So the predictability that we had in the industry going forward just isn't there. And, uh, you know, we had 84% of food service companies report uh, a less profit in 2023 than in 2022. And unless things change, we're, we're certainly looking at a situation where uh, they're going to be over that tipping point and have to close their doors. When you see half the industry not making any money, that should be a real concern as British Columbia's third largest private sector employer. And the things you mentioned that government could do as far as reducing the costs or perhaps encouraging more people to go back to restaurants, would that make of an, enough of a change or enough of a difference to, to make the difference for, for some of these restaurants to keep the lights on or to shut down? Yeah, every little bit helps. And, and you know, we're still struggling with uh, with food costs going up and other costs going up. So it all depends on, you know, what the economic forecast is. Are interest rates going to come down in the following year? Is there going to be that consumer confidence? Because one of the things we're finding, unfortunately, is, you know, as we're feeling the pinch, so are our guests. Uh, they've got uh, their expenses have gone up and their disposable income's gone down. So, uh, so the trick for this very resilient industry is how do we get those people to continue to support their local restaurants uh, and recognize that it's not just helping the restaurant, but it's helping the community that they're in. And with other initiatives as well, right now in Vancouver, it's the Dine Out Festival with hundreds of restaurants taking part in that and trying to get people into the restaurants. And uh, I, I know, too, that it's a, a limited menu. It's, uh, in many cases, a less expensive menu. So they're obviously not making a ton of money there either. But the idea of getting more people out and, and to enjoy and maybe try out new restaurants. But typically, January is a pretty slow time. Is it slower, though, than than normally? Well, yeah, and as you know, we have to rely on our December sales to get us through these next three months, which is uh, historically the uh, the slowest time for restaurant sales is that uh, January to March period. And really appreciate Dine Out. I mean, that's something to help at least uh, get customers back in restaurants during this typically really slow time of year. Uh, but again, you know, uh, if we have continue to lose money month after month after month, uh, restaurants will have no choice but to close their doors uh, in, in these difficult times that we're living in right now. Are there things that restaurants are doing as well as far as being innovative and um, things like trying to maybe get by with not as many staff members? Not that that's great if people are losing those positions, but finding other ways to, to cut down on costs? No question. And what we see, and unfortunately, we're looking at more food pricing. We hear there's going to be a big chicken price increase in BC coming. So so we've got those concerns, but they've been pretty resilient at, at managing their menus and trying to get more low-cost items on there to make sure that they're still providing the value to their guests uh, that uh, the guests are looking for, recognizing uh, the situation that our guests are in as well. So they're doing that. There's also a big shift, as you know, Jill, to take out delivery. Um, you know, we don't make as much money off of that, uh, those, but uh, a lot of our members have uh, sort of uh, uh, got their minds around that. And that's certainly something that's helping them become more resilient is, is to make their, their takeout uh, options uh, more palatable for, for their guests that are, are increasingly demanding takeout delivery. 
And when you look at the different kinds of restaurants, are they experiencing it in different ways or seeing, I guess, different response from the public in that if maybe if somebody has the budget for fine dining, maybe they're always going to make time for fine dining and that's a part of their restaurant experience. But are, are kind of the, the more... Uh, the more reasonably priced restaurants, are the, are they feeling the pinch more? Or are you seeing a difference when you look at those different price points? Yeah, no, a great point there, Jill. I mean, it's a very, very diverse industry. We've got everything from food carts all the way up to those high-end fine dining restaurants. But the vast majority of BC restaurants are in that middle category that do have very value-conscious guests, and, and they've caught a constantly pivot to make sure that they're providing value to those guests. Now, if you're a high-end restaurant, uh, uh, your customer base probably isn't as, as concerned about the, the cost increases or the menu cost increases. And and I think it's important to note, though, that uh, in trying to make sure we still get uh, our, our customers to come through the doors, that uh, uh, we have not passed along all the cost increases that we've had to absorb uh, onto menu prices. We've actually kept our, our menu price increases uh, relatively stable in an effort to make sure that we're, we're still providing that value to our guests. So what do you see happening then? This this ask has been put out or these suggestions for some of the changes government could make. Have you had any response or how confident are you that this could actually happen? Well, certainly I think the federal government has gotten a lot of pressure on the SEBA thing. They've given us a hard no. So I think it's incumbent on them to, to, to look at the industry, our industry in particular, which is, is not doing that well out there. And it's already a really labor-intensive, low-margin business. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, on things like the excise tax and the business deductibility of restaurant meals and, and other ways that they can actually step in and, and, and make it a bit more affordable, lower our costs, and certainly do no further harm by adding more legislation or regulations that are going to further increase the cost of the industry. Uh, because, uh, you know, as I said before, we're, we're at a tipping point where so many of these restaurants are are having those discussions about whether they can stay in business. And right now is a key time over the next three months. Uh, if, they, if they can't generate enough revenue to pay their bills, uh, they will have no choice but to, to close their doors, which is unfortunate. It is uh, indeed. Mark Von Schellwitz, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.